Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, April 22nd, 2016. It's Earth Day, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Happy Earth Day, Indre. Thank you very much. I'm glad we are still on this Earth and it doesn't, you know, hasn't changed that much. You know, I feel like the Earth gets short shrift. Only one day? Come on, we can do better than that. So that's why we're making it Earth Month at Inquiring Minds by kicking off a series of interviews around climate change, exploring everything from sea level rise to the impact to marine life to the impact on human health. And given the current lack of discussion of climate change in the U.S. presidential election right now on both sides of the aisle, it seemed fitting to start with a climate communicator. So we dialed up our climate communicator in chief, Bill Nye. Bill Nye's on the show this week. I know, it's awesome. I love Bill and what he has done for science education, defending evolution, even planetary science. But Bill has really taken out sort of a bold bet on climate change lately in the sense that he is straight up confronting climate change deniers right where they live. Uh, Currently, right now, he just released a video where he bet a meteorologist who confronted Bill and said that the graphs that he shows that show, you know, temperature rise are inaccurate. And Bill said, I bet you $10,000 of my own money that 2016 will be one of the top 10 hottest years on record ever. And that meteorologist, this guy's name is Joe Bestardi, interesting name for a meteorologist. Who's also a denier. He is a denier. So maybe that name is fitting. And he has not responded affirmatively that he's taking that bet on. And why would he? Because it probably will be one of the top 10 warmest years on record. But this is an interesting approach to not just ignore the trolls of climate change, ignore the deniers, but actually confront them. Do you think something like that could work? I mean, time will tell. I do think that I'm already frustrated. I should say I'm already frustrated with the fact that there's a lot of evidence suggesting that this climate change thing is happening. It's affecting us. And yet most of us don't seem to do anything about it, even in our own daily lives. Maybe we reduce and reuse and recycle a little bit more than usual. Um, But it's not like everyone's rushing to put solar panels on their houses. And 
I, so I, I think that there is still a shift that needs to happen in the culture where this becomes something that everyone decides they are personally responsible for or need to do something about. And I don't know how to bring that shift along. I know that in terms of other debates, Bill Nye has had a huge influence, especially um, on people in the U.S. So if anyone can do it, maybe he can. You know, for me, there is some evidence showing that conservation efforts that you and I can make, that everyone can make around the world, can make a dent. But it's not the full solution. We need public policy that's going to shift things. So when I think about climate change action, like you mean, it really intersects politics in some way. And so it's interesting that he has become such a spokesperson for climate change, because in a way, we need to change how Congress is enacted about it. Because while there aren't that many deniers out there, they're a small segment of the population, they're probably highly overrepresented in the U.S. Congress. And, you know, Bill Nye is a great communicator. He's really fun to watch. He can be really interesting and enthusiastic. And he can he, even dance a little he, bit, according <laughs> to Dancing with the Stars. He can, he, yeah, he can dance. He's, he's, he's truly an entertainer, and science needs that, of course. And I, I think that, you know, may, maybe this is a year in which he can really make a major impact because he can call out, you know, some of the politicians on whom the spotlight is being shone because of the election. Uh, you know, about how they think about these things. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful on that. But at the same time, you know, there's a part of me that just wonders, is, is it enough just to say, hey, you know, you're wrong and I'm right, is that, which is sometimes how this rhetoric goes. Uh, that doesn't seem to be very effective in terms of changing people's minds. And I don't know if that's really where we should be going next, is actually changing minds. Or do we just go and change policy the way, you know, a lot of other social justice issues have moved forward in this country, for example? You, you change the policy and then the minds get changed. I think... The number one thing I think we have to see change is climate change be a priority amongst the voting populace. Right now, it ranks 16th out of 19th, according to the Pew Research Center, uh, according to important issues uh, for public policy to tackle in the context of the election. So being that low, nothing's going to get done because politicians read polls. And, you know, here at Inquiring Minds, we're going to do our little tiny bit part by making a four-part series a month on things related to the Earth and specifically related to climate change. The Earth is a wonderful place, and there is one uh, article that caught my eye this week that I thought would be kind of appropriate when we're talking about Earth Day that has nothing to do with climate change, but everything to do with just how wondrous Mother Nature is. Oh, let's hear more about it. <laughs> so, Tell me how wondrous Mother Nature is. Let me first say that as of this taping of this episode, the paper, it, which is published in PNAS, is still under embargo. So I can only take New York Times writers James Gorman's word for it about what this paper actually says. But the title says it all. It's a question. Do honeybees feel? What do you think it's like to be a honeybee? Is a honeybee conscious? So I think it's probably very unhappy life as a bee. I mean, if your title as a bee, I mean, majority of bees are just drones. They just work all day. They work all night. They work some more. 
and then they die. But they have a huge social network. They have an intricate place to live. It's like the ultimate communist society, right? Everything is provided for them that they might need. They have to dance all day so that people can find their way back to the hive. Well, anyway, this paper apparently is one in which a cognitive scientist named Andrew Barron and a philosopher named Colin Klein from uh, a university in Australia propose that, in fact, insects have the capacity for consciousness. And this isn't quite as outrageous as it sounds. Even in Gorman's article, he mentions the fact that Christoph Koch, who's well known as being one of the cognitive scientists who really has been at the forefront of looking at the neural basis of consciousness, suggests that, you know, any really complicated neural network is has the capacity for consci- consciousness. In fact, he even argues that some non-living communities uh, could have some form of awareness. And I mean, it's more it's more than just, say, you know, complexity. So it's not like your computer has awareness that doesn't have the experience. Um, But there's no reason for us to infer a priori that a honeybee, which has a pretty complex brain, doesn't have some awareness of the fact that it exists. Are we talking about individual bees or the whole colony itself? We're being... talking about individual bees. And it's not that the bee would necessarily feel like, oh, I'm, I'm sad that I'm a drone and not the queen, <laughs> but still have some awareness of itself as an individual. So again, haven't read the paper, really looking forward to reading it, but I love this kind of pondering nature of these kind of philosophical questions when we think about, you know, what is the minimum required brain matter or circuitry or conditions for consciousness to emerge. So I guess finally this question is, is it immoral to take a honeybee's honey if that honeybee is conscious? Should we should we not be taking away the the, you know, product of its hard labor? A question only Winnie the Pooh can answer. <laughs> so on that note, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Bill Nye. This week's episode is sponsored by Earnest. Did you know that you can refinance your student loans, save thousands, and make your new loan incredibly easy to manage? Earnest has created the most flexible refinancing experience to help financially responsible grads take control of their student loans at meetearnest.com. Their product helps clients save an average of almost $18,000, with variable rates starting as low as 2.13% APR. Earnest never charges any fees, so no fees for origination and no penalties for paying off your loan quickly or changing your terms down the line. They let you customize your payment to match your budget and timeline, and their simple dashboard makes it easy to manage your loan, even from your phone. Earnest can do this because they're a new kind of lender, one that looks at things traditional banks don't, like your savings habits and earnings potential, to give you the lowest possible rates. And even better, their expert in-house customer service team is available via phone, email, or chat for the life of your loan. It takes less than two minutes to find out how much you could save, and they even have a special offer for our listeners. Get a $150 bonus when you refinance through meetearnest.com slash inquiringminds. Don't get stuck paying more than you have to. Check out meetearnest.com slash inquiringminds and take two minutes to see your personalized rate estimate today. Bill Nye, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's so good to be here. So you're the CEO of the Planetary Society. You're one of our chief science popularizers, defenders of evolution, but you've settled on climate change as being a big priority. Why? 
Well, uh, because it's the, the it's a great big world, and we have seven point three billion people trying to live here, and they're going to be nine billion, and climate change is going to affect almost every one of us. Now, keep in mind, if you look at my Big Blast of Science, which is a kids' book I wrote in nineteen ninety three, I have a climate change demonstration in there. Twenty three years ago, I was concerned about this. So, th- was there a moment? You know, back 20-some years ago, is that you decided that climate change was going to be an area that you needed, that people needed to focus on? Oh, yeah, I think it was in 1988 when uh, James Hansen, who was a scientist from NASA, testified in front of the U.S. Congress about climate change. And uh, there was a convergence for me also. Uh, I took astronomy from Carl Sagan. I took one class from him. I'm not like it was not his star student. I didn't suck. I was just a, a guy in class. And he talked about nuclear winter. This would be where you explode so many nuclear weapons, so much debris is thrown into the atmosphere that the world cools off for long enough to cause trouble to big living things like you and me. Then just a few years later, people found uh, this layer of iridium, uh, metal around the world was the Alvarezes, and they determined that there was an impactor, a comet or a meteor that hit the Earth, meteorite that hit the Earth 65 million, 66 million years ago. And uh, so there was this convergence for me that you could change the climate of a whole planet if you had enough dust in the air. And then the climate models that Sagan and Pollock had developed, these would be computer programs. Back, back in the early 1980s, converged or merged with the climate models that people at NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric or the Weather Service had been compiling. And I, it occurred to me that it was quite possible to change the climate of a whole planet if you had enough people doing it all at once. And so I've been concerned about climate change for decades. And you've been one of the leading voices in climate communication, and we're kicking off a series of conversations with a diverse set of climate scientists. And I wanted to start by asking you, where, what is your strategy around how you communicate climate and to whom? Well, the thing for me right now is to, uh, in hockey terms, to skate the deniers off the play. And uh, the deniers have been very successful in introducing this idea that scientific uncertainty, plus or minus some small percentage, is exactly the same as plus or minus 100% <laughs> doubt about the whole thing. And they've held the world back, and especially the United States back, in addressing climate change. So uh, I... I want climate, the big thing is I want climate change to be an issue in this year's election, presidential election. I don't think it's a controversial thing to say that the U.S. president is the single most influential person on earth. So if we were to have a U.S. president who's a climate change denier, uh, the world is headed for more trouble than it needs. But there's this old adage that you don't feed the trolls, and there is some estimates that only about 11% of the U.S. population are quote-unquote deniers, uh, in according to a, a Yale climate survey. So are we actually talking to a group that's influential? Well, then why, has, why don't we have wind and solar power 
on on industrial scales everywhere. Uh, and I th- although the populace uh, in this Yale survey may say it's only that 11 percent are deniers, the deniers have been very successful in stymieing a lot of legislation that advances uh, renewable energy. You've become much more uh, aggressive is the only term that I could come up with in terms of how you're approaching some of these uh, these deniers. Just this week, you released a video taking on a public bet against a weatherman uh, who had well, been uh, a denier. Mind, the weatherman challenged me. He, he started it. He started it. Yeah. <laughs> but why such a strategy where you're you're kind of getting in their face and as a you know, climate change believer and evangelist. It's great. It really is. Uh, I mean, you're talking I about love you. it. Yeah. You're, I, you're an evangelist. Yeah, okay. I love it. I love seeing that. I'm wondering how the rest of the population that's sort of more in the middle is is viewing those confrontations. Well, I'm, I've been counseled, and I strongly believe there's a lot to it. If we, if the world, if the United States, let's say, we're talking about climate change, in the way we're talking about gun control, the way we're talking about or not control, the way we're talking about Second Amendment rights, if we were talking about climate change at the same with the same intensity we're talking about Black Lives Matter, we would be doing something about it. So the science is well established, and the scientists have done their best to convey the seriousness of the situation. Nevertheless, here in 2016 presidential election, uh, climate change is hardly mentioned. I was on a television program recently where they presented statistics. I didn't go researching these, but in the debates, the presidential debates, there were 22 climate questions out of over 1,300 questions. And that, in my view, is inappropriately low. And so, uh, and all the candidates have meant, have understandably deflected questions about climate change to questions about cap and trade, which is a specific uh, idea to address climate change, which is not popular. So uh, the uh, seriousness of climate change has not been addressed by candidates right now. In the context of the election, what what do you think this should look like? What is a legitimate climate change discussion look like in terms of debates and public policy during an election cycle? Uh, Well, what are you going to do about climate change, Mr. or Ms. Candidate? What's your plan for that? In the same way, you have a plan for education, you have a plan for taxes. There's one candidate who wants to abolish the IRS, which is a controversial thing. (laughs) Where would the government income come from and so on? Uh, Along that line, I'd like people to have, candidates rather, to have a plan for addressing climate change in an aggressive way. I mean, to me, this is scientifically, it's not controversial. It's a political problem that's much bigger. Political problem is much more difficult to solve. I mean, we definitely agree there's no controversy about the science here. But well, if, you and I agree. Yes, you and I agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think there's a lot of people out there that agree, too. Uh, but at the same time, Pew Re- uh, uh, releases their annual survey of public pri- uh, policy priorities and climate change ranks 16 out of 19. Yeah, see, so that's what I'm trying to change this season. That's what I don't think is appropriate. I think it should be much higher. So how do we change that? Do we change that by attacking the politicians or or, or looking at the, the public writ large? Well, I, in order to raise, to, to make the conversation 
louder or to have more people participate in the conversation. I have gone after the two notorious climate deniers who have gone after me. And I have, you know, social media is so important nowadays. I have a great many followers in social media. So I want them to get excited about climate change. And the big thing is I want people to vote, people to vote in the 2016 election. And when they vote, I want people to take the environment and the climate into account. For those that aren't up to date on your activities, which are these two climate denying groups or individuals you're referring to? Well, once a guy named these are both guys I ended up on Fox News with sort of um, unwittingly. I went to the studio here in Los Angeles and they were each of them was in a studio with the host in New York is the way I recollect it. It was getting to be several years ago. And they um, each of them, uh, we, we would deny the facts. We would not be able to agree on the facts. And one of them is Mark Morano who just released a film where he got Sarah Palin to say uh, at the uh, screening of the film, which was on the in the Rayburn building on Capitol Hill. He managed to get that done somehow. He got Sarah Palin to say that she knows as much about science as I do. Bill Nye does. Uh, to me, that's to many people, that's an extraordinary claim. Uh, and then the other guy is Joe Bastardi, who published a thing online in an unusual journal called the Patriot Post saying that uh, he presented two graphs. One of, this, one of them, the scale is too big, it goes four and a half billion years. And it's, it's actually an old graph that is no longer used. It refers to some geologic uh, time scales that are no longer in use. It has tertiary instead of paleogene and so on. And uh, it masks the phenomenon when you go four and a half billion years. This is before all the continents are where they are today, for crying out loud. Before bacteria, I mean, uh, uh, cyanobacteria were making oxygen and so on. And then the other graph is just 11 years. And that's too short a time frame to see the phenomenon of climate change. So uh, we all hope in the scientific community that this will be this year will be the tipping point And we will elect somebody who was going to address climate change. Bear in mind right now on the conservative side, this is in the spring of 2016. Each of the three people remaining in the presidential race are climate deniers. Now, after they pick somebody, I will not be surprised if that person and his running mate come out and say, well, we've, we've thought about it and climate change is a very serious issue. And they, then they present a plan because they I don't think they can get elected. I don't think anyone can get elected without a substantial fraction of the millennial votes, people in their 18s to 32s. And so they're going to whoever gets elected is going to have to court that cohort. And that's not a bad thing. It's a thing. So we'll see. So you're putting yourself in this position by taking on deniers by Essentially, you know, picking fights with them in a lot of ways. You're putting. Well, keep in mind, and it's my point of view. They picked fights with me. Okay, they started it. Fair enough. Fair enough. But you're putting yourself in this position where you're you're the subject of ridicule, as you said. Sarah Palin, you know, said she's as much a scientist as you as you are. Uh, that's a lot of personal punishment to take. Uh, how uh, how does that sort of uh, uh, resolve to you? How does that feel to? to be the lightning rod. Well, 
Is it I difficult? I can do. I feel it's something I can do. And I, everybody, I have consulted with the real climate scientists. And these are people that the deniers do their work very hard to discredit. Michael Mann, Lee Kump, William Ruddeman. These are people I've been corresponding with about the efficacy of this approach. And uh, each person, uh, Gavin Schmidt, each person has said, well, look, what we've been doing hasn't quite worked. So uh, try it. So I'm. Oh, uh, so it's an experiment of sorts. Uh, of sorts. But when you put the money out there, I think that, uh, well, I guess literally raises the stakes, but I think it also raises awareness. So that $10,000 bet is my money. That's it's. I'm, it's not about donate to your favorite charity. It's not about mayors of cities saying, "Well, my donuts are better than your donuts," or whatever mayors bet on our crab cakes are better than your crab cakes. This is my money, and uh, I, I just tell you right now, in uh, right before Earth Day 2016, I'd be very surprised if either of the de- deniers take the bet. The bet is that 2016 will be among the top 10 hottest years on record. It's not that controversial. Everybody knows it's going to be one of the top 10 hottest years. And by the way, to Senator Cruz, who's talked a lot about the satellite data, because the satellite data that we're talking about use radar or microwaves interacting with the mesotroposphere, the middle of the troposphere where the water vapor is, 2016 will probably be the hottest year by satellite records. It's not, it's not for sure, but probably. And so I don't know if anybody will hold Senator Cruz to account on this when it happens, but, uh, this is one more brick in the, uh, anti-denial ziggurat. I just saw a report that came out, I think yesterday from scientists saying through the first three months, we're already up uh, 2.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So we're well on track for it to be the hottest year on record, period. Yeah, the reason the reason 2016 might not be the hottest year is uh, the El Nino is tapering off. Uh, the thing that made last year, 2015, especially hot, is that's winding down. And so 2016 may not quite be the hottest year, but it, don't be surprised if it is. So when I turn on my television and hear somebody talking about climate change, it's often you, which is great. I love seeing you on TV. I'm not complaining about seeing you on TV. But I'm wondering where these climate scientists that you're talking about uh, corresponding with, where do they fit into this equation? What responsibility uh, do they have? And what can we expect from them around communicating their work? Well, you know, Michael Mann has written a book, The Climate Wars and the Hockey Stick. And these guys, uh, Gavin Schmidt, he works at the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, which is part of NASA, National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and they publish their work. They publish their graphs. Yesterday you saw the news story. And that, I believe, was from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And everybody, the science is settled. Everybody's very concerned, and they publish their stuff. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, has published its work, and it's that stuff's all done in English, even in France. It is done in English. And they parse every word to get every country to sign on to these very carefully worded diplomatic agreements. But in the science community, everybody's 
very concerned. The science is settled, as the saying goes, but the deniers have been extraordinarily successful. The head of the science committee uh, in the House, Lamar Smith, has a picture of the Hubble from the Hubble Space Telescope on his wall. But in general, he does not approve any Earth science research because he has some real hardcore Tea Party people in his congressional district, and he has to he has to work with them. And so uh, these are this political the political challenges are very big, you know. And by these, I make money outside of my academic obligations. You know, I mean, these guys they have jobs, and you know, like Cuccinelli, the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia, had all these freedom of information things and stuff against Michael Mann for using Commonwealth dollars to investigate climate change. So he left. In other words, he left the Virginia education system to go to Penn State because, like, enough. You know, like, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. He gets envelopes with white powder in it, this harassment of his children. I mean, it's, these guys, its they're just worn out. I mean, how much do they want, do you want them to put up with? The scientists do their science job, and the politicians are working. They're working with uh, whatever they can, by all accounts. There's a group of Republicans in the United States Congress that's ready to address climate change. They're ready to hold hands and jump in, but they need just the right leadership with the right timing to get to work this this year's election. It's a complicated business. So if I'm an average Joe and I'm looking at this election, what power do I have to influence that small group of Republicans that you're mentioning actually doing something about climate change. Vote! 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 And uh, everybody's got to vote. And just take the, cli- the climate and the environment into account when you do. And then Congress, members of Congress and Senate, respond very strongly to your emails. You know, I, as the head of the Planetary Society, we advocate for space exploration on both sides of the aisle. Space brings out the best in both sides. And so we hope the same will be true of climate legislation, climate regulation. You know, but when you have presidential candidates saying we're going to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency, I mean, I'm of an age where I remember people dying in their sleep in Pennsylvania from the air being so bad. And we all talk about the Cuyahoga River and Cleveland catching on fire. I mean, uh, we don't want to go back to that. Nobody wants to go back to that. So, So there are a great many very reasonable people in Congress who are playing their hand, they're dealt with these gerrymandered congressional districts, and they have to please an extraordinary minority. But uh, just everybody vote this year. That's my big thing. So where do we go from here? Are you optimistic that things are going to change in a direction that we're actually going to see more U.S. action around climate change? So I, I tell everybody, you've got to be optimistic. If you have a pessimistic leader, you're not going to go anywhere. You've got to believe the problem can be solved. And uh, just as a tip of the hat, I'm not on the board. I'm not a member or anything. of. There's an organization called the Solutions Project, solutionsproject.org, uh, that has done an analysis. And they these are it's led by a civil engineering professor at Stanford, uh, Stanford University. They're, they're satisfied that the United States could run every state – on uh, renewable energy by the year 2050, if we just decided to do it. 
And the example I give everybody, I am of a certain age. Both of my parents were veterans of World War II. Both of my parents are interred at Arlington National Cemetery. My father was a prisoner of war for almost four years. My mother was an, a cryptographer in the U.S. Navy. So these people solved a global crisis in less than five years. They got it done. They won the war. So we can do this in 30 years or 25 years. We can do this if we just decide to do it. Let's go, people. As the saying goes, you might be familiar with it. Quit your bitching. Let's get to work. That's an incredible sentiment. I mean, in all of these battles, we need allies as well. And it's just it's not just the community. Do you see the potential of folks like Pope Francis, somebody that we consider oh, sort of great. outside the science spectrum, being able to really shift public policy as much as the engaged science populace? Absolutely. You know, and this and as we say, at this level, this is not rocket surgery. <laughs> there are seven point three billion people breathing and burning an atmosphere that used to sustain fewer than two billion. And the population is uh more than doubled in my lifetime. And the atmosphere is fantastically thin. It, it's uh if you could drive straight up at highway speeds, you'd be abru- above the breathable part of the atmosphere in five minutes. And that's why we're changing the climate, and that's why we got to do something about it. There's just a lot of us breathing an atmosphere that isn't especially thick. So you don't – the Pope can understand this. People with any reasonable training in mathematics – I'm talking about elementary kids, middle school kids – can understand a graph. You can see what's going on. This is the whole thing, the scale of it. The last two and a half centuries is where the action is. That's where we put in – all this extra carbon dioxide, and that's where the world has gotten warm very, very fast. And I'm, I remember doing a job for Exxon in 1994, and these executives were talking about the wind turbine business that they had had a small role in, but they abandoned that in uh, the 1990s. And you may have seen the documents the New York Times discovered in 1977, where before Exxon was ExxonMobil where their scientists found, hey, man, if we stay in this business, we're going to make the world warm. And all those people were dismissed. So uh, we could turn these industries around, have the oil companies go into the energy business, not the oil and gas business. When we build wind turbines, they have to be built in the United States with U.S. jobs, U.S. workers doing U.S. things. You can't outsource all of that. You can't outsource the mounting of solar panels on the roofs of industrial warehouses and homes. That's got to be U.S. jobs. That's good. When I put solar panels on my house in 2007, there were four companies that I could call. Now there, are, I believe there are over 50 in my area that I could call to mount solar panels. This is solvable. Let's go, people. We can do this. And my last question is, it's about six months to the U.S. presidential election. What can we expect to see out of you in, that, in those six months? Well, uh, if, if both candidates on both sides start talking about climate change uh, and present reasonable plans, you know, then uh, my work will be done. <laughs> but if, if people continue to pursue this denial, denialist, extreme doubt, point of view and policies that they promote, then I will continue to combat it in the 
the ways that I can think of. Because everybody, the scientific ways, this is to say reasonable evaluation, critical thinking about the evidence, that's, we've done that and the evidence is overwhelming, but it hasn't quite been effective. So I'm trying these other things. So this is the first and only time I'm going to say this. Let's hope we don't hear much out of you over the next six months then, because it means we're doing something right. Yeah, yeah. Bill Nye, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Let's change the world. So I'm still a little skeptical of whether... He, Bill Nye's going to have the impact that we need him to have. You know, if it's just a matter of screaming louder than the other people in the room, I, I, I'm still worried that we need to have a, a, a deeper conversation if there's going to be policy change, or even if we need to necessarily worry about what the general public thinks that if we just should just really concentrate on changing policy for the better good. I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated question. I kind of agree. I am like, and I don't want to. That's the other thing. It's like, I love what Bill's doing. I love that he's getting in the face. It feels unique to science that we finally have a champion who's great on TV that the media loves to focus on that gets out there and mixes it up with some of these just straight up idiots on some level. So it's really satisfying, but it's satisfying to me like a piece of chocolate cake is like, immediately satisfying and then a half hour later i'm filled with a little bit of regret in the sense that i i'm not sure it accomplishes much in the long term i don't think that's how we change people's minds or change it such that climate change becomes so much more of a priority to just you know normal average day people in the same way they list you know uh, the economy or terrorism uh, but that's the one on the list that always struck me as weird terrorism is number two on the pew study of things that are important to people. And it strikes me as funny because there's not that many people that die from terror, terrorist acts each year. And it's an incredibly sad item when that does happen. And it's something we have to take very seriously. But climate change, I think, poses a bigger security risk to most. Absolutely. I mean, it. you know, that is definitely backwards. And, you know, at the same time, I feel like one of Bill's charms is that he is an everyman, right? So anybody can relate to him. And sometimes scientists can come off as, you know, being standoffish. In fact, I was just looking at one poll or one an article that was talking about how people think that a scientist is more likely to be a murderer <laughs> than, what you know, poll the is general that? public. Uh, maybe it made a little bit of clickbait. But, you know, a lot of people think of scientists as being cold and unemotional and, you know, unrelatable and here's bill nye who's very relatable and you know very easy to sort of you know feel an affinity towards and and yet it makes me really sad that even even scientists who are excellent communicators like michael mann are getting so much pressure not to speak you know the fact that he's getting you know threats and envelopes with white powder sent to him i mean that just seems so sad it's almost like he's a woman on the internet <laughs> in terms of how much pressure he gets. But I will I will say this. The one thing that Bill said that struck me as kind of unique and it, a little bit different than what we normally hear is that when he argued that, you know, this isn't part of scientists' responsibility in some way, that they publish their work, they go to conferences, they do really good, rigorous work that's, you know, furthering their field. And then on top of that, we're expecting them to come out into this political foray 
and be excellent communicators. And maybe that's not the way to go. And it was the first time I, I stopped and I was like, huh, maybe there's something to that. I mean, it's something I've been talking about, you know, for a little while is that, you know, it takes talent and skill and practice to speak well in front of people. And do we is that really what we want our scientists to be doing? Or do we want to outsource that work to people who are interested in it? And, you know, intrinsically and are good at it because they've been doing it for a long time. So I mean, this is why we have science writers. This is why we have people who are engaged in science communication. And, you know, I think it's just as insulting to think that someone can come and step into our shoes and do our jobs better than we can just because they have a lot of informational knowledge. You're inviting <laughs> but... a lot of listener emails this week to take <laughs> over the podcast from us. Um, but, but yeah, so anyway, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, I think I think it'll be great to see Bill Nye get a bit more play in the next um, few months leading up to the election. I hope he does make some noise. I hope he does change some minds. And I hope that we elect a president for whom climate change is at the top of their agenda. It's at least one issue I'm going to take into the voting box. So hopefully it makes a difference. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Brendan Ryan, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our everyman, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Ernest. Ernest offers the most flexible student loan refinancing available, saving clients almost $18,000 on average. Ernest looks at things traditional banks don't, like your savings habits and earning potential to give you the lowest possible rate. They never charge fees and let you totally customize your term and payment amount to match your budget and timeline. On top of saving an average of around $18,000, our listeners get a $150 bonus when they refinance. Check out meetearnest.com slash inquiringminds to get your personalized rate estimate in just two minutes. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.